Hello and welcome to this Bible study. My name is Dave Bigler. This is Iron Sheep Ministries expository study of the book of Exodus. We are going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And today we are on Exodus chapter 17. That's not true. We're on Exodus 18. I apologize. Um, I just want to pause real quick. If you um, haven't checked out what Iron Sheep does, we do way more than just these through the Bible studies. This is uh, the most frequent thing that we do, but there's a lot more to this ministry. And if you have been fed by these studies, I invite you to join with us either in prayer or financially. You can go to ironsheep.org and there's a, a button there that you can click to give to help support what we do here at this ministry. Check out all the different things we do. Uh, take a look at the fold. That's the local men's ministry ministry, Apostle Talk, our fun interviews where I talk to people who have been sent, those that have been sent out by God, hearing their stories. We also have uh, an amazing outreach in Malawi, Africa that is growing um, and into 2024 is going to grow pretty strongly uh, from what God has shown us thus far. So a lot of exciting things. I invite you to join with us. Now we're going to go through Exodus 18, which uh, I know the past two studies I've said this one that, that I'm not going to go over my time. And this one, I'm really going to try not to go over 50 minutes. Uh, we'll see how I do. I'm already going over my intro, uh, but I'm excited for this. We're going to break this one up into two chunks. Uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes on the scene. We're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about the Midianites. And then we're going to talk about um, delegation and um, delegating activities and things for leadership and judgment, uh, etc. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you that we are take the time, able to take the time to study your word. I pray that you will speak through me. I pray that you will open our hearts, our minds, our ears. Teach us about who you are, Lord, and, and give us an application of how we can let this uh, permeate into us and affect us from the inside out. We love you, Lord. We dedicate this time to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to uh, break this up. Uh, we are not in 18, 17. We are in 18. Yes. So we are going to read the first seven verses and stop and talk about that. Then we'll read verse 8 through 12, uh, talk about that, and then we're going to do verse 13 through 27, which is Jethro's advice. So join with me. I read from the NIV. Um, read from whatever translation you like. If it's distracting, if you have a different translation from this and it's distracting to see the differences in, in the text, just listen. Just sit back and listen. Or if you like, follow along. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped, near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Verse 7, So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. So let's open up this chunk and and talk about it. So first of all, Jethro. This is not our first uh, encounter with Jethro. As you recall, Exodus 2 is when we first meet Jethro. Uh, He's first labeled as the priest of Midian. That is Exodus 2.16. Then in Exodus 2.18 as well as 2.20, he's referred to as Reul, which uh, translates to friend of God. And this is our only real indicator um, of where he's at. He's a priest of Midian, and we know, as I'm going to explain, where the Midianites will be later on. Um, But at this point, we don't have an indication of if they're following God, if they're following Yahweh or not. And his name is referred to twice before his name Jethro is referred to. He's referred to twice as Reul. Then in Exodus 3.1, he's referred to as Jethro. And then from then on in uh, the narrative, he is referred to as Jethro. So the question is, it's possible that Jethro was a title. It's possible that um, these are two first names or a first name and a last name. We don't know specifically what it is. We just know that his name is both Jethro as well as Reul, which means friend of God. Now, we also see here that he is a prince, uh, excuse me, a priest of Midian. So he's a religious leader in Midian. Well, who are the Midianites? Who are the Midianites? The Midianites first uh, are on the scene in Genesis 25 is when they are first uh, mentioned. And this is where Midian comes in. Midian is the son of Keturah, is his mother. His father is Abraham. This is after Sarah has died. Abraham remarries, has several children, and one of them is Midian. So the Midianites are descendants from Abraham just like the Israelites are, um, and just like the Ishmaelites are. But, so that's the initial encounter where we get Midian and the Midianites. When do we next see them in our Bible? Not until Genesis 37. When do the Midianites come on the scene? When Joseph's loving brothers see a caravan of Midianites traveling from Canaan down to Egypt, they sell Joseph to the Midianites, to the Ishmaelites. And then the Midianites then trade, uh, sell uh, Joseph to into Pharaoh's house. Excuse me, not Pharaoh, Potiphar, Potiphar's house. Uh, Potiphar was the second in command, uh, the command of all of the guard, of Pharaoh's guard. So this is where we next see the Midianites, which, I, I mean... They're opportunist, opportunistic, I guess. Uh, they're opportunists. Um, they see, you know, the brothers that want to sell one of their brothers, so they buy him up. Uh, I don't think that's really following Yahweh and, and slavery, etc. But then we see here in Exodus the Midianites and Jethro being a Midianite. Midianite. So he represents the Midianite people at this point in time. But in the future, it becomes obvious that the Midianites are enemies of Israel. Uh, The next mention is uh, a pretty elaborate story in Numbers 25. If you want, you can read that for yourself. 
but it involves uh, Balaam, Balak, and the marriage between an Israelite, Zimri, and a Midianite, Kozbi, which ends very abruptly with them being killed simultaneously with a spear going through him into her. Uh, and then this verse from Numbers 25, 17, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. That's a command from God. Then we see in Judges 6 and 7, the Midianites are uh, dominating Israel. This is when um, uh, Gideon is brought on the scene by God to defeat the Midianites. And in Judges 6 and 7, you can read that story. Um, and that is the end of the Midianites. Uh, under uh, Gideon, Israel destroys the Midianites at that point. Um, so we see here, we're going to talk about how um, the Midianites as a people group represented by Jethro respond to what God has been doing. And that's still in verse 1. All of this is in verse 1. Her, so now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Word had spread. Everything that had been happening in Egypt, you don't have national television, you don't have newspapers, you don't have the internet, but you certainly do still have word of mouth. And everything that had been happening in Egypt, no doubt was spreading to uh, Africa as well as to the uh, ancient Near East uh, of hearing of these plagues. And then when the slaves in Egypt, the Israelites, escape and the majority of Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the Red Sea, that spread. That news of that spread, and we actually saw it in Exodus 15, if you recall, Exodus 15 is the song of Moses and Miriam after Exodus 14 with the parting of the Red Sea, in which we hear um, Moses say, the nations will hear and tremble, anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. Word had spread. Now among God's enemies, it does cause fear. And if Israel had gone into the promised land at the end of Exodus, as we discussed last week, and followed God's decrees as, as uh, Joshua had wanted to do, there is an element where God, just like at Jericho, uh, would have done a mighty work and defeated all of the great people. As, as you recall from last week, 10 of the 12 uh, people that were sent into Canaan, into the promised land to scope it out for 40 days, 10 of the 12 came back with... Um, reports that it's, they're, they're all mighty armies, they're strong people, we can't defeat them. And then that's when Joshua says, no, we have God with us. And God intentionally uh, spread the word that God is with the Israelites. And had the Israelites believed in God and gone into the promised land, I think we would have seen even more miraculous events happening where God would have terrified the people so that they they ran in fear uh, and just emptied the promised land. 
But uh, Jethro is an example of hearing what God had done, but not being afraid of it, but being excited by it. And we'll, we'll see more of that. So uh, continuing on verse 2, after Moses had sent away his wife, Zephorah. So when did that happen? When did Moses send Zephorah away? Now, there's three options that I was able to come up with. Um, we don't know for certain. We don't know for certain. Um, option number one is that it's possible that when Israel first left Egypt, uh, either before the uh, crossing of the Red Sea or after, that Moses sent Zephora and his two sons uh, to Midian to her father to say, hey, come and meet up with us at the mountain of God. Come and meet up with us at Sinai. We want to see you. That's one option. Uh, option number two is when the plague started to hit. It's possible that in Egypt, uh, Zephora and the sons are there, and then when things start to go really bad, Moses, to protect his family, sends them on. Uh, option number three, we do have, biblically, we do have Exodus 4. Exodus 4, we see Moses is in Midian. He's married to Zephorah, who is uh, Jethro's daughter, and they travel to Egypt. But there's an incident that happens on the way, and that's in Exodus 4, verses 20 through 26, which is a rather cryptic, interesting piece where Moses is about to die, and Zephorah circumcises their second son and says, you have become a uh, bridegroom of blood to me. And what we spoke about this, you can go back to the Exodus 4 study. This is all about circumcision, we believe. Uh, the, the theory is this, is that what we know from Genesis 17, that the covenant of circumcision was a sign for all Israelites that they're following God's covenant, that they, that they are God's people. It was the outward sign, appearance of that. Now, Moses is sent by God as his messenger and uh, uh, worker, as his servant to bring about, to bring the fall of Egypt and to show all of God's wonders. And yet Moses hasn't circumcised his second son. Why? We don't know. The stipulation and thought is, is that perhaps Zephora, being a Midianite, thought that the idea of circumcision was crazy and didn't support it. So then God, because Moses doesn't circumcise his son, Moses may have been sick on his deathbed, and this was a tension that existed where Moses said, we need to circumcise him. And Zephora said, no, that's barbaric. We don't need to do that. And then Zephorah uh, realizes what's happening and says, okay, we need to follow God's command, circumcises uh, the son. Now, we don't know what happens at this point. It's possible that it's at this point that Zephorah takes her two sons and leaves, which is actually my Bible references that um, as uh, uh, in Exodus 4.25 is the reference for after Moses had sent his wife away, Zephorah, there's a reference here to Exodus 4.25. We don't know. We don't know for certain. But if Zephorah left with her two sons and Moses went to Egypt alone, one argument is, is that that was God 
helping to focus Moses's attention and not have to worry about his wife and kids. But I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question. If this third option is the case, then this meeting where Zephora comes to greet her husband after being gone through all the plagues, everything that Moses has gone through, this would be a totally different uh, meeting and reuniting than the other two. The other two, if Moses sent her away and, and, and to, to go and let Jethro know what was happening um, or to protect her, those are all positive things. If there was some sort of tension that exists, this very well might have been uh, Zephora supporting her husband and coming to, to see him and be reunited with him. We don't know. That was a rather long explanation, but it's something to think about. Okay, now the two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, they are specifically mentioned by name here for a reason. There's a reason that both names are mentioned. Gershom means I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now the original meaning, that's given in Exodus 2. Exodus 2.20, Moses names his firstborn Gershom. I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. If you recall, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life as a prince of Egypt, living in Egypt. But then as a, as a young adult, in his 40s, he makes the decision to uh, embrace his Hebrew heritage. He is a Hebrew and he gives up his Egyptian upbringing. We don't know exactly when it was that he made that choice. We also don't know when he found out that he was a Hebrew. But he makes that choice. We do know that he does that. And then uh, he defends um, two Hebrews that are quarreling. Um, he, he, he ends up killing a, excuse me, I got this backwards. Uh, he kills, he protects a Hebrew by killing an Egyptian soldier, then tries to hide it. Then the next day, he uh, confronts two Hebrews that are fighting and says, why are you quarreling amongst yourselves? And they say, whoa, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Pharaoh gets wind of this, finds out that Moses had killed an Egyptian and wants to uh, apprehend Moses to kill him. So then Moses flees. He then goes to Midian where he is for 40 years in Midian, a foreigner in a foreign land. He marries Jethro's daughter, Zephora. But at this point, the foreign land is Midian and his homeland is Egypt. Well, now that name has now changed because this now, it, it hasn't changed, excuse me, but the significance of this is different now. Israel was a foreigner in a foreign land, whereas Moses was at home in Egypt. Israel as is a people group were foreigners. They were not, they were not from Egypt they were from Canaan. The land was set apart for Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, and they were not meant to live in Egypt for an extended period of time. As, as God straight up tells to Abraham, you will go to a land that is not your own, uh, but you will be there for 400 plus years, but then I will remember you and I will take you out. And that the Gershom, in, in mentioning that name, uh, it's the same idea um, of I've become a foreigner in a foreign land, it is Israel talking about Egypt being foreigners in that land. Now, with the second name, we have Eliezer, which is the first mention. My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. The original meaning he was named before Moses went to Egypt when he was living in Midian. His biological father was Hebrew, so his Hebrew father uh, 
his God, his father's God is Yahweh, was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So the original meaning in that name was God saved me from Pharaoh trying to kill me, and that's why he fleed. But now that that name has additional significance and meaning now because God yet again saved him, but saved him from uh, and all of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, from the imprisonment uh, by Pharaoh, the punishment, the um, slavery, that's what I was looking for, the servitude and the slavery of Pharaoh. God has saved his people from Pharaoh yet again. So the name has dual meaning here, first for Moses from his point of view, but again for Israel. Now verse 5. <clears throat> Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Near the mountain of God. The mountain of God is also mentioned in Exodus 3.12 is the reference to the mountain of God. In the wilderness, Moses goes to the mountain of God. And in Exodus 3.12, well, this is where the burning bush. Moses goes up to the mountain and hears from God through the burning bush. This is where God gives him the command to go and um, go to Egypt, and he will do mighty works through him. Well, now Moses is returned, not quite yet. He's near to the mountain of God. We'll see him next uh, Bible study when we get to 19, 1. Um, he's at the base of the mountain of God. So it's the same Mount Sinai, and we'll talk a lot more about that in the next few weeks. But it's significant to know that he's, he's back. He's back at the same spot. Okay, now let's read uh, just verse 8 through 12. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Okay, so Moses tells Jethro the firsthand account of everything that had happened. He had heard what had happened, but now he's going to get the story from an eyewitness, from the man himself, from Moses. And what is Jethro's response? His response is, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. And this is uh, the goal. As we've spoken about it, what was the whole purpose? What was the whole reason behind everything that happened in Egypt. Why did God do what he did in Egypt? Well, let's actually hit on a few verses. You don't need to turn with me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through quite a few of them. Exodus 7.5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. 
This is a witness for the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know. Exodus 8.10, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. This is Moses talking to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh, um, this is the plague of frogs, and Moses asks Pharaoh, when do you want these to stop? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And Moses' response is, okay, it'll be as you say, so that you know there is no one like our God. It is a witness to Pharaoh and thus to the Egyptians. Again, Exodus 9.29, I will go from that city and pray to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. So Moses is talking to Pharaoh. They're in the midst of the hail and thunderstorms and everything that's going on along with that. And Moses says, I will leave the city and then I will pray to God and it will stop. And from that, you will know that the earth is the Lord's. These things that were happening were happening so that Egypt would know who God is. So Israel will know. Exodus 6, 7, God said to Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The plagues in Egypt, everything that happened in Egypt, was to show Egypt, the nation itself, the power of God and who God is, but also the Israelites, so that the Israelites would know who saved them and who is their God and who is God over everything. But then also the world will know. And this is the significance. This is, this is it. Exodus 9, 15 through 16. This is spoken to Pharaoh. I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. This is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. I could have wiped you off the earth. Just boom. One time, one thing, not the ten plagues. I could have done it in one shot. Boom. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The deeds that are done in Egypt are done to show the world to Egypt in that day, to the Israelites in that day, to Pharaoh in that day, to the world in that day. But then through our text, we are able to know this actually happened. And this is a testament to who God is, his power, and that he reigns sovereign over everything. Specifically, I want to do a word study on the word proclaimed. So at the end of verse 16, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The word is sa-fer in Hebrew, and the translation is proclaimed in the NIV, the NASB, and the ESV. The King James and the New Clean James has declared in the earth, declared across the earth. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, has made known in all the earth. The NLV has honored in all the earth. And the NLT, the New Living Translation, has spread so that uh, my name will be spread in all the earth. God is doing this for a reason. 
to be proclaimed, to be declared, to be made known, to be honored, for his name to be spread across all the earth. And the thing I love about this is that Jethro gets it. Jethro gets it. He understands that this is what's happening. Now I know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God over all the earth. The other nations, the nations that are uh, in in rebellion against God, that are um, going against the Lord, they're terrified by what they hear. Understandably so, because they are against Israel. Those nations that are against Israel are terrified because they know that God fights for Israel. But the Midianites, represented here by uh, Jethro, get it. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. And that's a, a lowercase g in reference to the gods in Egypt. And as we've been going through this, I talked, I spoke about um, each of those gods that could have been um, attacked. Uh, I think it's Exodus 12, 12, where God specifically says that I've brought these to uh, show uh, the lack of strength to attack the Egyptian gods, lowercase g. So now let's read 13 through 27. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and his instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can determine themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Verse 27, then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. I love this section. Um, as a business owner, uh, former business owner, the last 17 years before I got into doing full-time ministry, um, I ran several businesses. And... This is an amazing uh, example, declaration of the power of delegating, delegation, 
You can't do it all yourself. And I'll talk about that when we talk about application. But first, let's look at context of what the significance was at this day. Moses is on his own. The people come to him and grumble, and Moses stands as judge alone. So what is the problem? Uh, verse 15 and 16 spells it out for him. Moses answered, Because the people came to me to seek God's will, Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. And I love uh, his response. What you are doing is not good. It's not good. What you're doing is not good. You are going to be worn out. So what is the problem? Problem number one. There's two that are here. The first issue is, is that Moses is just one person. He can't do everything. There's over 2 million people. With 2 million people, you're going to have a lot of issues that get uh, brought up and brought to their leader's attention. It's impossible for him to do this. From morning till evening, it's going to wear him out. Can't continue. The bigger problem that exists here is that Moses alone is the one who is sharing God's decrees. The people don't know what God's will is. What is right and what is wrong has not been clearly defined by the law yet. And the people are without that guidance. That is a huge issue. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is spelled out in a multi-process, uh, a multi-tiered process. Uh, first one, be the people's representative to God. The second one, teach them the law. The third one, show them how to live. The fourth one, select judges. The fifth one, make sure that they are capable, uh, God-fearing, honest, trustworthy leaders. And then give them the simple cases, but the hard cases you take yourself. That's number six. So let's look at each of these. Uh, the first one, be the people's representative to God. Be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. That's verse 19. First and foremost, as the leader, you need to submit these people before God. You need to go to God and pray for them, but also pray for God's uh, guidance in handling what cases come to you. Number two, teach them his decrees and his instructions. This is the biggest one. Teach them what God says. Now, coming up, right around the corner is the law. God is going to give his good and perfect law. He is going to spell it out in great detail. We have the Ten Commandments. Yes, that's going to be Exodus 20. 21, 22, and 23 is very, very detailed of if this, then that. If your bull gores a man, then this is what's supposed to happen to the man. This is what's supposed to happen to the bull. If the bull was known to, for goring, then you need to reprimand or uh, 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 replenish the man this much. Uh, continued. It, it goes into great detail of very specifics from a judicial standpoint of what to do. What are trial precedences to be set? Moses' job is to teach these decrees and instructions to the people so they know what is right and what is wrong, simply put, by the law. Number three, show them how you are to live and how they are to behave. Show them how to live and how to behave. Leaders are responsible for uh, showing not just teaching. And that is the very high call that's placed on a pastor. 
especially a pastor. I do not put that expectation on a political leader because <laughs> you should not follow politicians these days for moral conduct. Uh, but our pastors, this is the reason why they are called to a higher calling is because they are supposed to reflect and show what it means to be Christ-like. And that's what uh, Moses' uh, uh, advice is here. Point number three is to show them what it means. Reflect it in how you live. Now, I have number four as select. So select men from all the people, and then skipping down uh, further in verse 21, appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So these are uh, local officials, you know, it's listed here, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. I would, a, a modern day application for that is national, state, county, city, and town. In upstate New York, we have hamlets. I've never heard of hamlets before living here, but hamlets are little tiny villages, little tiny towns. So you, we have our local representatives on a very local small level at the town level. Then you have the city level. Then you have the county level. Then you have the state level. Then you have national level. And that is how to this day our government is run so that the Supreme Court doesn't see every single little tiny case. They're solved. The simple ones are solved locally. And as they get more complex, they go higher up in the courts where they eventually reach the Supreme Court. Now, I have as, uh, I did number four, uh, excuse me, four is the select, uh, and number five, I have um, the capable. So this is, how are you to choose which men are to lead? Well, there's a descriptor here. They need to be capable men, and specifically, they need to fear God, meaning that they love and respect God in a uh, reverent way. They are trustworthy to the point where they hate dishonest gain. If they're given opportunity to either receive a bribe or gain financially or in any way by being dishonest, they'll run from it. They're honest, trustworthy men. These are the people that are supposed to be the leaders. Now, again, uh, I wish that this were the case that we elected our representatives and officials and presidents not based on their opinion on specific issues, but on their moral character as an individual. So much of politics these days is wrapped around these hot topic buttons like issues such as um, what does this person think about abortion? What does this person think about um, the laws around um, homosexuality and transgenderism? What does this uh, politician think about foreign and foreign issues, the borders? These are issues that people decide who they're going to vote based on as opposed to morals. And I think the reason being is, is that I personally, looking at the presidential candidates, looking at our politicians, it's very difficult to determine um, who has good moral fiber, who has good moral character. One of the rules that, that I don't know if I heard this from somebody else, but it is what I use to decide who I'm going to vote for. If I had a 16-year-old daughter... And she had an opportunity to go and spend the entire day with a political individual. If what I know from that person, based on listening to them, based on them debating, based on uh, what we know about that character, would I feel comfortable with my 16-year-old daughter spending the day with that individual? This is why it's very difficult to vote for anybody. 
because I don't know many people that I would trust in that situation. Just an interesting element. I don't want to keep going down that tangent. And the final one here is um, let them handle the simple cases. Bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can handle themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. That's verse 22. Now, verse 23 says something interesting. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. So here's a question. Does God decree that Moses is supposed to do this? Did God give this idea to Jethro to give to Moses? Or is this just simply being a good steward of your time? Is this just good business? Is this good leadership? I would argue the latter of the two. We are given brains. We are given the ability to reason and to think. God doesn't need to walk us through every single baby step. If we see an opportunity to be a good steward of our time, of our possessions, of what we have been given by God to steward, then we should do that. The sower, right? No, or not the sower, the, the, the parable of the good steward. Uh, one takes what he's been given by his master and, and puts it out to gain from it. He is a good steward of it. And we are called to do that. Now, there's a specific, this specific verse, and God so commands is what hinges on all of this. So if God commands you is what the NIV, the King James, New King James, ASV, and NASB say. So based on this translation, Jethro is saying, if you do this and God commands you to do this, pray about it. If God tells you to do this, then do it and you'll be blessed. The ESV, though, excuse me, the CSB says, if God so directs you, which is the same thing. The ESV, though, I really like how they translate it. If you do this, God will direct you. If you do this, God will bless you through this. This is a good thing to do. If you do it, God will direct you within it. The message Eugene Peterson's translation or summary, not translation, but summary of the Bible says it this way. Let me tell you how to do this so that God will be in this with you. That's when I read it, that's how I take it is, is that uh, God didn't necessarily give this as a command to Jethro. It's just being a good leader. And it's an example of that. Now, is it possible that God gave this inspired Jethro to, to send this on? Is it also possible that uh, Moses then prayed to God and God did command him to do this? Yes, absolutely. But again, I don't think that God wants us to wait for every single little baby step before we do anything. He's given us brains to use, so we should use them but be patient and wait on the Lord and, and be open to his promptings. It's a delicate balance. So this element, uh, verse um, uh, 13 through 27, Numbers 11, 10 through 17, and Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 18, both give a similar story Numbers 11, uh, 10 through 17 is clearly a different time. It's later on, uh, it's after this point, but it's a similar situation where Moses is exhausted from all the people grumbling. Uh, but it's from this that we do get 
70 is the number. So in the account in Numbers 11, the number of leaders is to be 70. And this is actually the Sanhedrin that governs over Israel in the time of Jesus, the, the leaders over the nation of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin was the house that was supposed to have 70 members in it. This is the foundation here in Exodus. This is the foundation that later would become the Sanhedrin. Now, Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 18, very well could be this exact same incident. It could be a retelling of either the Numbers 11 incident or the uh, uh, Exodus 18. I don't know, but... but there is an element where it's pretty obvious that Numbers 11 and Exodus 18 are two different instances. Read them for yourself. Now, application. The first application I want to talk about is delegating. Now, when I read commentaries on this, the delegation was all within the church, that this is an example of what elders and deacons should be. And 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 there is truth in that, that this is... Uh, characteristics that elders and deacons should have, but the average size church in America today is quite small. Uh, I think it's a perfect size. It's around 70 or 80 people is the average size of a church. The average church also only has one paid employee. That's the pastor. So if you look at this and try to apply it and force it into ministry for a pastor, you would... It, it, it can work. It can work because you have deacons and elders that are voluntary uh, positions to do leadership roles in the church. Yes, I get that. But as a former business owner, uh, I have to give the application and testimony from my point of view. Uh, I have started up multiple different businesses. Some of them succeeded very well. Others have failed. Uh, others I've just pulled out of and just been like, you know what, I'm done with this. But at one point... Um, I had a business, I had three different businesses that were on Broadway in Saratoga, all run out of the same office. There were seven employees that I had, um, all in that office managing different aspects of the business. And I, my personality, I controlled all of it. I was responsible for all three businesses and I would delegate tasks, but I wouldn't delegate, uh, delegate uh, decision-making. And for me personally, this came to um, a physical manifestation. I was sitting, uh, it was around 10 o'clock at night, I was sitting in my bed, and I was literally reading Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip. I was trying to relax, and I love Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes. And all of a sudden, my heart started to do this dance in my chest. It was really weird. Uh, and my wife, being in the medical field, She's sitting there reading next to me. I, I reach over my arm and I'm like, feel my pulse. This feels a little odd. And then she sat there feeling the pulse. And then she actually started to look at her watch. And then she says, okay, well, um, your heart has gone into AFib. And I'm like, okay, is that bad? She goes, well, it's not good, but your pulse is okay. But we're going to go to the hospital. And all of a sudden, I freaked out at that point. I was like, well, now my heart's not okay. So all of this had come to a head because I was trying to run my world. I was trying to control every situation I possibly could. And I was doing too much. And it physically manifested in my body. So application, 
for business owners and leaders, people that are in positions of leadership uh, who are listening or watching this, make sure you don't try to take on the whole world yourself. Delegate responsibility. One of the challenges that comes with delegation is you have to be okay with people not doing it the same way you would. One of the things I heard is that you have to be okay with an 80% success rate. If you would do it yourself, it could be a 100% success rate, but you wouldn't be able to do everything and eventually you'd collapse out of exhaustion. It was at this point uh, in my um, business story that I hired a general manager to run all three businesses, the day-to-day -day operations of them, and that, holy cow, that freed up so much stress for me. Now, some situations, you might be a single uh, business, uh, uh, no employees, and you don't have the financials to do that. You might also um, be an employee at a business where this doesn't apply to you. But the takeaway here that, that I want to make clear is that if you're in a position of authority, if you're a position where you have leadership over people, if you have a position of leadership over anything for that matter, parents, mothers, uh, share the load with your husband and husbands make sure that you are helping to share the load. We're not meant to do this alone. We're meant to do this together. Okay, and the final application, I want to hit on the fact that uh, the Israelites didn't know the law, that they came to Moses because they needed to know what God's decrees are. There's a few verses that I want to hit on. Um, my favorite that I hit last week that is one of my tattoos, Joshua 1.8. Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you be careful to do everything written in it. The law, God's perfect law, is about to be given to us across the next few weeks. We're going to talk about that application, not being under the law, but it's still God's perfect law, and we'll talk about that. The Bible specifically talks about the fact that knowing this book, I'm, I'm, I'm broadening the horizon now to take Joshua saying, keep this book of law always on your lips. Keep the Bible always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Knowing what it says is one thing, but having it being written in your heart is the sign of true faith. A few verses here. Uh, let's actually flip to um, Deuteronomy. We have two verses and then we're done. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. Flip to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll give you a second to get there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, verse 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let me read again verse six. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Write them on your hearts is the idea, but back up and read verse five. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. That should ring out to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Why? Why should that jump out to you? Jesus' question. 
what is the greatest commandment? Jesus' response, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right there, Jesus gives us the greatest commandment that we are called to do. That's listed in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Mark 12, 30, and Luke 10, 27. Now, the last verse I want you to flip to is Jeremiah. Flip open to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Picking it up on verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is so relevant for where we're at right now. We are about to get what is called the Mosaic Covenant. It's the law, and that's what specifically here. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's what we're about to receive. That is, another word for covenant is testament. The old covenant is the Old Testament law. And this is where Jeremiah is prophesying the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will write it on their hearts. The law will no longer be something uh, textual, but it will be written on their hearts. They will know it. I will live in them. That's talking about the Holy Spirit. And we have inside of us the Holy Spirit to guide us to know God's will. We don't need to go and wait for Moses to, to, to let us know what right and wrong is. The Holy Spirit lives in this in us. And verse uh, 34, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is a prophecy of the coming new covenant done in Jesus, through Jesus. Powerful stuff. That's the application, without a doubt, it, that, that jumps out to me is, is that uh, as we were looking at Moses and the people coming to him, to seek guidance, uh, we today are blessed because of what Jesus did. He gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us as our uh, guide, as the voice of God in us to guide us for right and wrong. Some people don't listen to it. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It seems so trite and small to say thank you, but again, thank you. Thank you that you dwell in us, that our bodies are a temple for you. Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice, that we would become attuned to your voice, that we would study your word so much that when we hear you speak, it's a familiar voice. When we hear you inside, we clearly, quickly recognize it over the loud screaming of sin and temptation and Satan that, that would guide us in another direction. Help us to hear you crystal clear, Lord. 
and to uh, ignore all of the fuzz and everything else that's around us and concentrate on you. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to the people who are listening and watching this now, Lord. Guide them in their lives. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. I went over my time again. <laughs> this one's going to be a short one. Uh, oh, well. I mean, it's good stuff. Thanks for hanging with me. And next week we go into uh, Exodus 19, uh, which I might end up starting to break these into chunks because uh, Exodus 19 has a lot in it. We'll see uh, when I start. Uh, when I start that Bible study, we'll see how long that one lasts. I love you guys. I'll see you again. <laughs>